Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. We have the opportunity today to visit with Dr. Stephen McLeod and this podcast here at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. McLeod is the CEO of the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Today we will chat about the AAO, his leadership roles and things that are currently hot topics and things that are being evaluated, worked on and dreamed about at the AAO and what he sees for the future of our profession. Dr. Stephen McLeod is Professor of Ophthalmology and Chair Emeritus at the Department of Ophthalmology for the University of California, San Francisco. He is the CEO of the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Prior to assuming his CEO role, Dr. McLeod was the Editor-in-Chief of our Blue Journal, Ophthalmology. He served on the board of the ABO and the Council of AOS, the American Ophthalmological Society. He's also heavily involved with clinical trial design, research implementation, practices cornea, cataract, and refractive surgery. Welcome, Dr. McLeod. It's a pleasure to be here. We love this podcast opportunity to sit down with people that are leaders in our field. In this case, a leader in our organization that represents us is an exciting opportunity. So I just, we appreciate the time we'll spend. No, my pleasure. Yes, it's fantastic to have you here to get to pick your brain about ophthalmology in general, what it even means to be the CEO of AAO. So it's great. Thanks for being here. Let's start with actually that. What does the position as a CEO of our American Academy of Ophthalmology mean? And you know, what do you do in that role? What does, how does that consume your life? And how would you characterize it for those of us that are just caring for patients every day? It really is a tremendous opportunity and a, you know, a, a tremendous honor to actually um, have, have the opportunity to serve in the role. You know, what we do in the academy really is to bring together the voice of the profession in order to help each other with our educational uh, materials, to help to establish quality uh, standards for patient care, uh, to really have an aggregated voice to be able to advocate um, effectively in DC and at the state level. And all of this is for us as a profession, ultimately, to be able to do a better job in caring for our patients. And, you know, that's so, sort of how it all rolls up into our vision statement, which is to protect sight and to empower lives. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of listeners might not understand the nitty gritty of how Academy even works, the difference between the president, the CEO, is it a one year term, a many year term? Mm-hmm. It's a huge thing. You moved to San Francisco, you have stepped down from being chair, you stepped down from being editor of the Blue Journal, you've taken on this many year position. Talk to us about like, what is the job? What do you do? Yeah. So the American Academy of Ophthalmology really is a member and a member-run organization, effectively through its governance with the Board of Trustees, which ends up being the group that represents the interests of, of members. And the office of the academy effectively serves the needs and the direction of the Board of Trustees. Now, the way that the governance structure works, of course, is that there is a very healthy turnover of leadership within the board of trustees. And so essentially the academy office becomes to some extent the voice of continuity 
that runs through the organization. And so we try to make sure that we have initiatives that are immediate that come up from the membership and from the board, but there's also a bedrock of stability, as it were, for those things that are the long-term projects that we all need to work on to steadily advance the organization. So, you know, the way that the academy is actually organized is under various divisions that try to meet the various needs that we have. So, you know, obviously we've got member services and we have advocacy, which works obviously both at the the state and the local level. We have communications. And as as far as uh, those uh, divisions that are really outward facing, the other two that people um, know very well are going to be our quality and data and then our education. And effectively, what the office and the CEO does is to coordinate those activities, but make sure that they really are focused on both meeting the immediate needs of the ophthalmology community. And again, I think an important point is that we are really trying to structure and to serve in a way that meets the needs of the entire care delivery team, so that it really ultimately ends up being in the service of ophthalmology. Phenomenal. It's a nice to kind of think about that in these different veins of effort that has, that are kind of ongoing, as you're saying, the bedrock of what we do to support and what we hope our national organization is working on. In your position, I'm sure there are fires, though, too, yeah. in the sense of a vein, a leaky yeah. vein or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But yeah. what are the, get an example of some of the fires in ophthalmology that is because we, we want to continue to promote this wonderful profession that we celebrate. Yeah. And yet things can confront it, attack it, challenge it. And I'm sure that ends up some of your your day-to-day work is putting out fires. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, sort of I think that one of the, the things that will immediately come to mind for people are things like drug shortages and the extent to which we can try to advocate for policies that help to alleviate or address uh, some of these issues uh, going forward. Another one that I think people are very familiar with um, would be things like um, the prior authorization changing rules that emerge out of out of nowhere, and many of which are really not tied to any sort of clinically relevant science. And so that becomes really one of our primary responsibilities to try to raise awareness, to advocate at a federal level for rules, to really try to interface directly directly with the companies to to try to understand um, what is driving the decision making and to to try to redirect that decision making. And, you know, as as you can imagine, a lot of these things just sort of emerge on a weekly basis. But, you know, at the same time, it's really important for us to have a committed and dedicated structure to address the longer term issues that weigh over the profession. I I think that the one that people would very easily reach to is going to be physician payment structures. You know, that's one of those issues that it's a constant that we have to, to keep working on. It always flares up towards the end of the fiscal year, and uh, Congress has to make its decision on what the conversion factor is going to be in the very next year and whether that pool is going to stay the same or, or shrink. And it becomes to us, and oftentimes in collaboration with many of our colleagues across the House of Medicine, to bring the message to D.C. that at least for this year we need a fix. That's the short term, but the long term is we keep 
plugging away at what is going to be a long-term sustainable fix for uh, the way that physician payment is structured under Medicare. There's uh, you know, another good example of where we see changes that happen on a periodic basis where we have to be very vigilant and to uh, raise attention and try to redirect policy is the way that um, Medicare Advantage manages things like prior authorization, the way that step therapy is being moved into that domain. And so, yes, we have a number of fires, but we also need to make sure we're taking care of the fires and keeping an, an eye on the things that need long-term structural redress. That's great. I want to come back on that. You commented about you know, reimbursement and how that is, it seems like it's a, a dam that's breaking. We're just keeping putting fingers in different pieces mm-hmm. and we're always losing ground with yeah. each new crack and each new finger. Yeah. Share with us just your perspective on how do you and the leadership structure approach that with yeah. optimism, hope, or on the flip side, pessimism, which is depression. How do you work through and give us a a sense of what the progress is being made and what is the hope that in five years we won't have to be still nitpicking over defending our practice? Yeah, so, so I think that the optimistic piece comes from the fact that healthcare is something that is tremendously valued by our population and it's recognized to be a value by legislators. And so it's not an issue that is ever going to go away. And so it does mean that there is constant pressure on legislators to try to fix them. Now you can kick the can down the road and you can keep kicking, but the, but the fact of the matter is, it is something that is incredibly highly valued by the population, by voters. And for us to make sure that we keep attention on that is something that does give us hope. What does make it very difficult is if you just look realistically at the history of payment and Medicare reform, nothing ever happens quickly. There are a lot of failed experiments along the way and there's more and more inertia built into the system because there is, you know, a huge amount of money built in the system. That said, you know, there are existing structures that, if applied specifically to the physician payment component, uh, um, actually make sense. You have an inflationary index that is applied to virtually all other aspects of healthcare payment that if it was simply applied to physician payments would actually go a long way in solving the problem. So it's not as if there isn't a structure of precedent that can reasonably be applied to physician payment, but it is a, a heavy lift because of the cost. But the counter to the cost is that it is perceived as value. One of the challenges we have is to make sure that there isn't ambiguity about the value that we're providing with the care that we deliver. But if we can make a good case for value, there is obviously an enduring case for the importance of what we do. Yeah, well said. And I certainly, those of us that understand that lift, heavy as it is, can certainly recognize and appreciate the teamwork and the the massive amount of effort that the academy has behind that. So even though there's always individuals that question whether we're doing enough, I just applaud what is being done and continue the lift as it is because it's obviously of great great value. Yeah, it's so important for all of us. You know, you've talked about the day-to-day, every week changing these short-term fires that you're putting out. And then this morning you talked about some Mm long-term goals and visions. You talked about the future with ophthalmology in terms of health equity Mm -hmm. and fighting disparities in ophthalmology and our patients. And then even at lunch we talked with the residents and I loved how you mentioned you can't get bogged down in the day-to-day minutia so that you forget about your long goals and that you can't work on the long-term things. So tell us about some of the long-term 
big goals, those heavy lifts and, yeah. and long-term goals. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, as physicians, the most important thing to us is how well do our patients do under our individual care and under our care as a part of a, of a health delivery system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the question is, at this point in time, are we consistently delivering the kind of quality across all of the things that we do that really reflect the highest and best of what we can do? And the truth of the matter is there's always room for improvement. Mm -hmm. As the world evolves, we recognize that the way that we get to that improvement is really, first of all, through gathering the data that describe what are the outcomes of what we're doing now. That then allows us to say, what are the potential things that we could change to do a better job? In the right environment where we really can aggregate effort and people, we can actually then start to test, okay, what are the changes that we can make and do those make a difference? And once we identify the ones that can make a difference, we can go back and then try to make that as much as possible standard practice. That's something that on a case-by-case -case basis is incredibly expensive and difficult to do. But if you actually have a well-integrated data and information system and people really participating in this effort, then it can really accelerate how well we're able to understand and modify our care to deliver higher quality. And that's really what we're trying to get to within the academy as the nexus of information in terms of uh, care and outcomes. Embedded in that is a really important element that, that we talked about a little bit this morning, which is if our goal really is to get to the highest quality of care, we want that quality to be universal. Mm -hmm. And it's that universal high quality which directly addresses the question of health equity that is embedded in there. So those are goals that are, are entirely aligned, uh, quality and equity. And it's really that community, that very coherent community that we have in ophthalmology now ever more linked with a network of EMRs that we can interrogate through the IRIS um, database and otherwise that we really can come together as a community to transform care. It's a perfect segue. I was wanted to touch on the iris registry, yeah. just um, big data and how it's evolving. Yeah. You know, compared to five, ten years ago. Now, most national meetings, you'll hear big data outcomes in one yep. form or another, and I, very much the academy continues to support involvement yep. in that. Yep. Give us an update on how, what your perception's been for people in academic practice and just what does it mean tangibly for someone in private practice, how to engage in the registry, what they can get out of it and what the ask would be to yeah. participate. So the good thing is that um, particularly built around the incentives that Medicare's MIPS program has been built in, there really has been a lot of energy behind getting uh, practices in, in private practice to get into EMRs, get their data into registries, and really help to use those data to guide their examination of practice outcomes. It's been more difficult for academic medical centers because, as, as you 
you well know, when you're in systems of care, there are ways that you then can essentially circumnavigate the MIP system. And so for academic centers, the incentive has really more been a recognition of the importance of being able to, to get to aggregated data for research purposes. So it's generally been actually a bit more straightforward for, um, for smaller practices than it has with academic practices. But of course, you know, when you're trying to, to get a data set that truly reflects the true breadth of pathology and care out there, you really want to capture as, as many as possible. That's getting a lot better now. For us in ophthalmology, the other thing that I think a lot of people recognize is that we are a very, very visual subspecialty. And there's a lot of data that we have that is that is going to be an imaging data. And we're really just getting to the stage now that we can really start to incorporate a lot more imaging data you know, into our data sets. The other piece that's actually um, very important is, again, you know, when we think back to our uh, statement to, you know, to protect sight and empower lives, the empower lives piece of it is very important as well. And at present, what we don't always have is as good an integration between the information we have about vision and eye health and the rest of, of the patient's um, health. And so getting to the point that we can better integrate the eye data with the rest of the medical record so that we can really address our questions holistically, it's another big challenge, but it's, it's another big potential area for growth. So you'll have to forgive me. I still don't quite understand how the Irish Registry works. Yeah. And this morning I heard, heard you saying that you can actually access singular photographs from individual patients. Is that right? Or it's all in aggregate? It's big data. Maybe I'm yeah. totally missing it. So, Break it down. <laughs> yeah. Basically, the way that the system works is, you know, you have your EMR. Mm-hmm. You know, you just enter your data. It goes into the servers. And then periodically... There actually is an extraction from your servers that then flows into the IRIS registry servers. Now you do that the data are de-identified mm-hmm. and then those data, those de-identified data are aggregated within IRIS. Now those data come from different sources and originally we didn't really have a good way of also importing images, fundus images or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So that's really what our data science group, and this has really um, been efforts led by Aaron Lee at University of Washington. We are now better able to, uh, and it's, you know, obviously this is a very data heavy import, along with um, individual EMR, text EMR, we're also able to import the fundus imaging. Those now are living as a very large de-identified bank mm-hmm. um, within Iris, but it is coded by, you know, it's coded by by disease, et cetera. Diagnosis yeah. code. So it is accessible. So it is accessible. At this point, we're really still figuring out uh, sort of what are the, the best ways to, to arrange the architecture, et cetera. At this point, when you look at a lot of the Iris studies that have come out, they've really been um, based on the more easily extracted things like diagnosis codes, codes and right. IO and thing and visual acuities and mm-hmm. so on but we're really trying to get to the point that we can now try to link with that not just the um, the text data but the image data as well that's fantastic and are these data able to be utilized for clinical trials or is that something completely ah, different great question so 
Essentially, once you get into the territory of the clinical trial, you're essentially saying, can you use these data prospectively? There is a whole avenue of work basically called the pragmatic um, clinical trial. The grandfather of this was a so-called TASTE trial, which was essentially a trial that looked at managing the best way to manage acute MI. And essentially what they did was they used the electronic medical record as essentially the data record for the trial. So essentially, mm. the mm. way it's structured is you try to arrange your trial so that it is asking a question that is pr very much within the domain of your typical standard care. It's already but then, in the yeah, EMR. Yeah, so there is, so it's in the EMR, all the fields are there, and you're basically just making a decision between one choice in standard of care versus another standard of care. Mm -hmm. And then essentially you randomize, but it's all prospective. And then you gather the data and, uh, and you extract it from the EMR. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a very, very inexpensive way of running a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. And so there are obviously limitations around the type of trial you can put in there. But essentially for, what, for a lot of what we do in medicine, it's not that we're introducing something new we're saying there are a whole bunch of different ways that people do the same thing, yes. which is the best way to do it. Exactly. You can attack that question observationally to say, oh, there, I've got so much data with so many different, but there are so many biases obviously built into the choices people make that as long as you can get people to be fairly comfortable with the idea that they will actually prospectively randomize, you can actually just take that mechanism and, and generate a lot of data that helps you with, clin with practical cl uh, clinical decision making. Hmm. In your landscape and connecting with individuals with research ideas and proposals and now big data and everything is coming, AI is emerging as a tool that's sort of opening our new horizon and yep. what we might do, whether it's in writing a college paper yep. or in mm -hmm. helping us understand different demographics about the systemic health of a patient for yep. diabetic retinopathy yep. or cataract. Share with us your sense of the conversation as this is a moving landscape on what you see. And I know that even this morning mm -hmm. we talked about how AI is being introduced in certain studies. Mm -hmm to look longitudinally or prospectively at patient care modeling. Yeah. But share with us the types of ideas or concepts or what your vision might be. You commented, you used the word empowerment. Yeah. I think everyone's afraid that we're gonna lose our jobs for yeah. the X, Y, or Z, or opportunity to care for patients. Yeah. But in the theme of empowerment, share with us that positive hope yeah. of what we might tangibly bring to our patients yeah because of AI linked with the data that you have in Iris and other locations? The AI conversation is all over the place. It's actually hard to identify any sort of space in medicine where you can't make a case that there is a potential role for AI there. So I think that I, I would sort of um, divide it up into a few sort of big domains. The one that people, I think, tend to get a little bit carried away with is the whole area of clinical decision support and the degree to which clinical decision support transitions to being independent cl clinical decision making. That's a huge conversation we can put off for now. I think that you know, much more accessible and much more immediate is the recognition that there is an enormous amount of work that we do as physicians and then along the care delivery pathway that is 
repetitive, that is not particularly cognitive, that is just a lot of busy work. And then there are other things that do actually require the physician's touch, but but the pathway there sort of has a lot of things in it that we, we probably don't need to be doing. When you ask the question, what is it that is going to change the landscape for things like physician reimbursement when we have a growing patient population, we have growing needs, resources are shrinking, it is the use of AI in the care delivery pathway, whether it is, you know, for example, AI systems that are now acting as the transcriptionists that then, you know, prepare, you know, your note for you that you then get to review and that at the same time it extracts what you've said to the patient and creates the patient after visit summary so that you know and then but it's not as if you're giving it all away but the things that you used to do by hand and then say okay I like it it's that much more efficient now because there's a prepared document for you you just make sure it, it's consistent with what you would like and you send it out the door all of the billing coding front there are just so many tasks that get done that if we can figure out how to get AI integrated then you can start asking the questions about decision support and whether and now which is not to discount at all a lot of the importance of the decision support work that discussion sometimes gets a little bit derailed by people saying what is my role going to be versus the robots and i think that the statement that the um, the radiologists have used for a long time has been people don't need to worry that the ai systems are going to make radiologists go away there are going to be two types of radiologists the ones that use ai and the ones that don't and that the ones that don't that are going to go away mm -hmm. well makes said. sense yeah. i feel like i see ai especially within ophthalmology especially within care in underserved areas as such an extension of our abilities screening potential you know we're already seeing use of it for screening in the va mm -hmm. and that's where it, i see the most potential and then also with international work and outreach getting mm -hmm. people to have eye exams and screening and vision checks and getting them plugged in in places where they wouldn't have had access and to me that's exciting mm -hmm. absolutely yeah absolutely. i know i kind of want to segue to yeah. talking about some international work too because yeah. i know that's a passion for you yeah. and that you're trying to increase international engagement within the academy yeah. which is super exciting yeah. tell us a little bit about international yeah. ophthalmology what what you see for that and, and what your goals are and vision with yeah. that the American Academy of Ophthalmology really has developed a tremendous education and support resources for ophthalmologists and for ophthalmology. And one thing that's very important to us is to try to make sure that these resources are as available as possible to the wide world of, of, of ophthalmology. When we think about the impact that we can have, we do recognize that, yes, it's true that there is a tremendous spectrum of environment out there. And there is, and, and different regions have different needs, but there certainly are core resources that we need to try to, to, to make available to help the world of ophthalmology and that we really see our role as being really a resource, not just for, for care in the United States, but, but care globally. I appreciate in the past there's even a registry AAO. Is it still there? Is that something? Because we've within the Peds Ophthalmology yep. at APOS, I've I'm on the international committee of APOS, and we've talked about 
sort of how you generate and sustain resource opportunities in a way that's tangibly searchable, but Mm -hmm. also stays current, knowing how each site can change and experience can change. Share with us, is is the registry still active at AO, and or is there another resource by which ophthalmologists seeking international opportunities could turn? Yeah, so that's actually something that we've put quite a bit of effort into. It was actually uh, Rich Abbott who put the first um, iteration, uh, but we actually have a very well-maintained site on the web that allows uh, individuals to use a series of drop-down menus to really tailor the searches to try to identify what resources and what mentors in which specialties, whether they're paid or unpaid, et cetera, et cetera, are available globally. It's, it's a resource that is very well used. Of course, uh, one of the things that is, is always uh, challenging is to make sure that it is as updated as possible, but it's something that we really are trying to keep green, active, and alive, and, and people do use it um, very heavily. It's it's a it's a very useful resource and very what so you know we, we always thank rich for that yeah, wonderful <laughs> plug love it dr mcleod i want to ask you too knowing everything you know being as engaged as you are how would you suggest that community ophthalmologists a general ophthalmologist in, in private practice how can they engage with ophthalmology nationally internationally and then how can an international ophthalmologist someone from across the globe engage with academy so i would say um there are, for, for local ophthalmologists the things that it, it actually is always going to be important for local ophthalmologists to be involved in their local and state societies. It's a really, really important thing. And, And we see ourselves as supporting state societies That's a really important thing for us. It is very important for that engagement to be both with the local community, but of course also with the larger community. There are a tremendous um, number of opportunities for engagement with the larger academy. You know, you can always go onto the the website and identify, you know, your areas of interest so that, you know, you can be called for committee and so on. But, you know, the other thing is that we really feel that even things like the annual meeting – that so much of the um, the effectiveness and the and the the dynamism of the annual meeting is actually really drawn from our members using that opportunity to come together and to learn from each other as much as they learn from the uh, key opinion leaders, <laughs> uh, you know. So a lot of it really is both local and academy engagement. And we actually really want to hear from our members as to what we can be doing with our programs to make sure that we're meeting them where they need. That's outstanding. You have worn many hats and you've been, I just, you know, appreciated in many prominent, you know, whether it's the ABO or AAO and and our leadership for our profession. For the new ophthalmologists coming into practice or training, you, you know, we each have our own leadership yep. journey, and some of us land in academic institutions because we like that. Yep. I like the word dynamism <laughs> yeah. about being together yep. in that cross-pollinating, yep. iron-sharpening, iron professional work. Yep. Well, how would you encourage people new in the practice? Because there is this tendency of, I yeah. just want to go and serve my patients from yeah. 8 to 5 and go home to my kids. Yeah. yeah. I think what people are missing, maybe yeah. especially post-COVID, yeah. is that connectivity, bond, vibrancy, encouragement, yeah. and then in particular, the volunteerism to be within that a leader. And I really yeah. celebrate your plug of the State Academy efforts yeah. and that opportunity for people. 
But for you looking back at your leadership yeah. journey, when did you feel that that step into leadership was kindled yeah. with through ophthalmology, and how would you kindle it to yeah. people listening? I'll get back to where you started, which is, you know, people have just come out. There are a lot of pressures on them. You know, you want to work and get home to the family. We have a lot of discussions now about burnout. The thing about the stresses in life is that you need support, you need community, you need to know you're not alone. You also need to sort of learn how others manage these uh, challenges in professional life. And what I, what I worry about is it's to some degree isolation that exacerbates the desperation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be said simply for finding your friends. Mm -hmm. A professional community is going to be a, a group of people who truly understand the challenges that you have. It's there that we would encourage people to find it. Now, within those groups, you know, leaders will be born, and some people may not want to be leaders, but, but it is really important to just be a part of that professional group. Well said. Very well said. I think it's so important. Uh, I cannot thank you I enough. I was going to say, I just want to keep talking. I know, I know. <laughs> this has been so fruitful. Really, thank yeah. you so much. Absolutely fantastic. Great pearls. Really great insight. I'm so glad you're our leader. So yeah, thank you for being here. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. We'll look forward to more. And thank you again for everything you do and for all the listeners. Just uh, you know, appreciate what the AAO are, is doing and leaders and know that we just hunger for all of us to be together to keep doing it better for tomorrow. Yeah, ophthalmology really is the best. I'm glad we all agree. It's the best. <laughs> you can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 